Hey everyone, and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thanks for joining your hosts, Tierra and Jack, for what is now episode 168. So we're getting back to a traditional Q&A, and we've got some good questions. As always, you can follow us on the Bodybuilding Dietitians to make sure you uh, get access to all the Q&As, which we usually do about once a week on our stories. And that's the best way of getting questions to us um, that uh, we'll answer. So we'll start off with this first question. Do you want to read this one out, Tiara? Yeah. So this first question, it says, what is some advice you can give to new coaches, particularly new comp prep coaches? Mm, Great question. Good one to start off with. And I think we're quite up to answer this since we've uh we started off as coaches wanting to get into bodybuilding clients and of course we coach a mixture of people but i think when you start off coaching even if you are an aspiring prep coach it's uh it's not like your books are going to be filled up straight away with with just prep clients Mm, absolutely you have to gain experience from the ground level and then climb your way up and I feel as though you and I can really speak to this topic now because we've been competing since 2018, but we've been coaching competitors and lifestyle clients alike ultimately ever since the beginning of 2019, right after we launched this podcast. So 2019, 2020, 2021, 2020, that's four years that we've actually been coaching people. So I feel as though we really have climbed the ranks in that sense. And now we can finally speak to this topic and say, okay, what is some advice that we would give to people just starting out? And ultimately I want to say from the get-go is that if you are fresh into entering the coaching scene, I think it's a good idea to kind of look at that as if you have a clean slate. And ultimately, if you're going to start building up your clientele and you're trying to make a name for yourself in this industry, I think that it should be one of your top priorities to try to make a really good name for yourself in the industry and essentially hold yourself to a very high standard and have a good reputation and be known as someone who is not just a great coach who can get the results, but be known as someone who takes good care of their clients, takes really good care of their clients' health, someone that supports other coaches, someone that supports other athletes, someone who is heavily involved in the bodybuilding community. And ultimately, you just want to be able to make a really good name for yourself because in this industry, man, like reputation means everything. And you can have a really good reputation or you can easily have your reputation damaged and people don't forget things you know people talk things stay with people for a really long time particularly if you are a comp prep coach who is involved in someone's life and you have the potential to actually have a big impact on their life in a very positive or negative way that's going to stick with people so Yeah, I would say that if you're getting first off involved in this industry, just see it as a clean slate and ultimately just do right by people. Be a really good person. And I would hope that no one is getting involved in this industry that is sinister enough to have poor intentions or practice with ill intent and they want to do wrong by people or damage people's health. But 
unfortunately, we do see it happen, whether it's intentional or not. And I think that really just comes back to always following best practice guidelines and just really treating your client's health as a top priority and only applying protocols within the bodybuilding space that are evidence-based and that you feel confident doing and that they're safe and that you're actually qualified to do so. You're actually practicing within your scope. So those are a few just important points that I want to say from the get-go. Yeah, for sure. And I think the the other interesting aspect in prep with if you do want to get down the prep route is sure there are coaches out there who make their break through or get their break through like having a an amazing client or I mean or there can be lots of different amazing clients but someone who is very gifted and who wins a show or wins their pro card and that kind of gets the ball rolling nicely for that coach because they get a lot of inquiries and and word of mouth Uh, but that doesn't always happen sometimes you just gotta work from the ground up and still treat every sort of prep client as if they are a world champion and still give them as much as possible. Uh, But also I think it's important to not be too hungry to get as many clients on stage as possible because ultimately a lot of people aren't ready to get on stage and that'll show in their prep and then it will show in their recovery phase afterwards because they just don't have the foundation required for like either being have the muscularity to be on stage or they don't have the the lifestyle or living the bodybuilding lifestyle so to speak to actually get on stage so it's important and that's why we in our first couple years like we didn't really have sure covid didn't help but we didn't really have too many competitors who jumped on stage because a lot of people who decided to work towards a prep with us like they ended up having to be with us for a couple years in an improvement season first before they could step on stage. But once they did step on stage, they were incredibly competitive. Mm, I think that is such an important point to get across. And personally, I think that demonstrates that you're actually a really good coach. If you can take someone from that ground level starting position, go through a productive improvement season with them, really develop their physique, really develop their habits and their lifestyle and their mindset, take them through then a successful prep where they might come out victorious. And then after the prep, they also have a really successful exit strategy back into another improvement season. So yeah, you're absolutely right. It's quite rare that right off the bat, you are just going to have some sort of top tier athlete fall right in your lap and you're going to take them immediately through a prep. In saying that, you and I actually did kind of have that experience a little bit in our very first competitive season coaching clients because season A of 2019, we had Kate who won the overall bikini at the AWNBS show. Mm. And then we also had Oliver who was a very talented first timer in the men's physique category. And he took out first place in a number of different categories in his shows. So That was a bit of a special exception, but then that was season A of 2019. And then I would argue it wasn't actually until season A of 2022 
where we had been working with clients for a number of years prior during their improvement seasons, but then they were finally ready to then step on stage and show the fruits of their labor. And some of those clients, they had very successful seasons in season A with Kate and Chloe. And then here in season B, a number of our TBD girls like Veronica and Nikki, to name a few, where they were really able to come out victorious. But again, that is us working as comp prep coaches for four years. And then it's really only in the fourth year where you and I, we see our own fruits of our labor. But by all means, you know, if we were impatient and it was just a top priority for us to just have a team and just put people on stage, which I would argue would be quite irresponsible, then for sure, we had clients that we could have been like, yeah, you know, you look pretty fit. Why don't you compete next season? Or, you know, there's a show in 16 weeks or there's a show in 12 weeks. Of course, people will do that. They will jump the gun because mm -hmm. they just want to be like, I'm a comp prep coach now. I need to show up with a team of athletes. And oh, gosh, sure, you might have the quantity, but I would argue it's always going to be about quality at the end of the day. And again, it builds you respect. It builds you a good reputation in this industry. In the case of you can kind of have that delayed gratification, be a bit patient with your own career, do the work behind the scenes. And then when the time is right, really deliver some top tier athletes to stage. Mm. Yeah. Another thing that I'll say, which might just more to be personal preference on my end in terms of how people market, but I think your results, with clients should do the talking. I, I don't think you should necessarily be selling all the time because one, I don't think that looks the best for your current clientele. If you are every day putting up um, something about a discount or about needing to onboard new clients. And also I'd put more time into producing content for free that's informative or entertaining as opposed to selling. And that's what, of course, we've done on TBD quite quite extensively. Like we've been running the podcast since 2018 and we uh, try to put out two to three informative posts a week on our Instagram page as well. So, and that way, I guess the trick with putting out free content is that it's never enough content, even if it's an incredibly well done post. Like let's say a recent post from us, which was about like, first-time competitors and five tips for first-time competitors. It's informative, it's educational, sometimes it's entertaining, it's well put together, but it's never enough for someone to suddenly coach themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no one could scroll through the TV Instagram page and be like, ah, I know exactly how I'm gonna conduct a prep. <laughs> like, by all means, you know, we give as much information out there and hints, but you can't be coached through infographics. Mm, you can't. And like, that's just a selling point from us to show what we know and to spread good mm. inf information and to try and also myth bust bad information. Mm. And, and it's it a passion too, you know, genuinely just enjoy producing content like the content we release on Instagram, like these podcasts. Mm. And I think that's a good way of marketing yourself and as opposed to like lit the literal sense of marketing, which is mm. saying you need more clients essentially. Yeah. I totally agree. And again, it just kind of comes back to the case of like, especially in this industry, like word of mouth means so much. And 
ultimately you're likely to more so build up your clientele one if you take really really good care of your current clients and that's your top priority rather than always focusing on getting other clients because people speak to one another and word of mouth and referrals I would argue that word of mouth referrals getting reviews like that's always going to be more of a selling point in that case because that's actually proving hey I can get the results and people are happy compared to whatever it says on your Instagram page or whatever it says on your website. Like a large majority of clientele are going to come through other people being like, yeah, you know, this is my coach and like, I I absolutely love working with them or just someone else kind of recognizing that you're doing good. So then they're going to refer you on. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Those would honestly be my main points. And um, have you got anything else left to say? I think just coming back to that point that in this industry, Ultimately, reputation, it means everything. And it's just so fundamental that you do hold yourself to a very high standard as a person to be very kind and supportive and respectful to other athletes, other coaches, other teams, the event organizers, because ultimately that is going to be reflected back on you in the sense that other people are going to respect you. They're going to support you. They're going to commend you on your results too, because everyone knows everyone in this industry. And it's so close knit and it's so niche that if you do wrong by someone or by other people and you're talking smack, like people talk and people find out. So you can't go around just bad mouthing people and gossiping because it just looks really bad on you. It just looks like, you know, you are insecure. It looks like you have not a very high level of maturity either. And it almost kind of goes back to that saying that there's two ways to build the tallest tower. You can pour all of your love and time and energy and investment into building your tower to be as tall as possible and never hesitating to ask others for help. Or you can build a tower of a mediocre size, but then pour all of your time and energy into going around and destroying other towers and trying to break them down. (laughs) So that kind of goes the same in terms of coaching. And we just, we do see some poor practice out there in the industry, which is really unfortunate. But man, if you take that second option, eventually someone who is heavily resilient is going to build a very, very tall tower. And no matter what, you're not going to be able to break it down and more just going to keep popping up and you're really just going to stay on ground level yourself. So (laughs) yeah, that's, that's the main thing is that just be a good human being, man. And, uh, that's probably going to lead down the path of being a really good coach too, for a long time because I think if you're getting involved in the bodybuilding industry and you're like I want to be a comp prep coach and you're quite young if you're serious about it and you're passionate about it you're probably looking at doing this for many many decades to come so you want to be able to hold a really good name for yourself for the foreseeable future yeah it's still such an emerging sort of industry in the 21st century and yeah as you said earlier on like it should be an expectation or you'd hope that people are getting into it for the right reasons and that they're genuine human beings as opposed to someone who has ill ill intentions Mm -hmm. absolutely and at the end of the day all you can do is really just do your best like focus on 
coaching to the best of your ability, focus on ensuring that athletes have the best experience possible to stage so that they can really just deliver their best packages and the results on the day, that's what matters most. You know, anything that is said along the sidelines or throughout a prep about this and that, this and that, like it's not going to influence the results at the end of the day. (laughs) So yeah, I just uh, discourage people from just talking smack and just be nice to one another. Mm, sure yeah (laughs) okay well we're gonna move on to this second question this one's a little bit more nutrition related it says what are some micronutrients that you see as worth tracking and paying attention to so by tracking i'm not sure if they meant like getting a blood test and tracking it that way or potentially tracking it in regards to i don't know measuring out their iron Mm. milligrams (laughs) but i think either way that it's, it's worthwhile to definitely pay attention to certain micronutrients, especially if you are of a demographic that's more susceptible to being deficient, like a vegetarian or a vegan or someone who doesn't get enough sunlight exposure or is a night shift worker, for example. So there, there definitely are some, and I think my top ones would be vitamin D3, dietary iron, and calcium as well. Mm. I think especially for people who are in the bodybuilding space um calcium is one that is overlooked a lot of the time yeah it's unfortunate how many meal plans that like you and i do a lot of single consults and a lot of dietary recalls and diet consults with individuals and it is unfortunate sometimes like when you do diet recalls how little calcium people are consuming either just through their dietary pattern or through following a previous meal plan and Calcium, man, it's so integrally important for our bone mineral density and our bone health so that when we're old, we're not suffering from fractures and the risk of osteopenia and osteoporosis. But calcium, it's also heavily involved in our electrolyte balance too. And it's involved in nerve conduction. It's a huge reason why you're able to actually release insulin from your pancreas and why your heart's able to still keep beating. And yeah, calcium, very, very important stuff. And it's unfortunate how neglected it can be in the diet. So for example, you might have meal plans that are just oats and protein powder and almond spread. And then you've got like chicken and rice and green beans for a bunch of meals. And then you might have one beef or fish meal at night with potatoes and broccoli. Like there's no cheese in there there's no high protein yogurt there's no cottage cheese there's there's no milk there's no casein powder which casein by the way is actually a really good source of calcium little hack there if you want to mix up your different types of protein powders you can have a scoop of casein protein powder which has like somewhere close to like 500 milligrams of calcium in it per 30 gram scoop. At least that's the one that we get from VPA, which is just freaking amazing because calcium, it actually binds to the casein molecule. But uh, calcium, in terms of recommendations, you need around 1000 milligrams per day on average for most healthy adults. So yeah, it's just really unfortunate when it is neglected in the diet. Uh, because it's essential. So um, even if you don't consume those sort of animal products, even if you can literally just consume like some calcium fortified almond milk or calcium fortified tofu, that's a huge win. That's an absolutely huge win. Or if you don't even consume those products, man, you probably do need to look at taking a, taking a supplement. Mm. 
And that's where just kind of ticking off the five food groups is, is important because the five food groups, although I don't know how, it's probably not that many people know exactly what they are, but it's like fruit, vegetables, whole grains, lean protein sources, and dairy. And the reasons why they exist is because each food group has a unique array of nutrients. So if you're excluding a food group, chances are you're excluding a particular group of nutrients as well. So I honestly think just addressing the five food groups and having adequate quantity of each food group is probably easier than having to track the individual micronutrients themselves Mm. because that's a bit of a hassle. It's not even something that I do. It's not really something that you do either. Mm. We just ensure that we have adequate dietary diversity from the food groups and let's say you exclude dairy, maybe you're lactose intolerant or you have maybe an ethical reason, then that means you just need to pay attention to those micronutrients you're missing out from that food group, such as calcium Mm. or B12 and ensuring that you're having them through supplementation or through fortified milks, etc. Or heck, you could eat some sardines or they also have these cans of tuna now that have like these like powdered bones in them too. But I guess like you said, if you're a vegan, you're probably not eating fish either. (laughs) But it's not actually that difficult to hit your calcium requirements. Like usually generally just need three servings of calcium per day. And a serving could be equivalent to like 250 milliliters of milk or a calcium fortified alternative like almond milk. Like anywhere between maybe like 25 to 40 grams of cheese. You could have around 200 grams of yogurt or high protein Greek yogurt. Again, a scoop of casein instead of a scoop of whey, a can of fish. Like there are definitely ways to hit your calcium requirements each day for sure. But heck, that's enough on calcium. I like how you mentioned vitamin D because even if you live in a sunny country like Australia, it's unfortunate how prevalent vitamin D deficiency actually is. And hell, even if you're actually exposing yourself to the sunlight, you can actually still be vitamin D deficient because maybe you just have poor conversion of vitamin D in your Mm. body, like yourself. Yeah, I was borderline deficient. Not that I really see the sun too much. I'm not someone who um, intentionally like exposes my skin in the sun. Like I'm quite conscious about, yeah, sun damage and and sun and skin cancer and stuff like that. Mm. So mm. I just supplement with vitamin D myself and it's such an easy way. There's no, there's literally no downsides other than the expense of it because it's very difficult to, to overdose on vitamin D mm. or to reach toxicity levels. So even like 2000 IU or vitamin D per day, like it'll put you into an optimal level because there's a difference between optimal versus just having enough. Like, especially for people who are, interested in, in maximizing their results in, in the gym, like having an optimal level as opposed to borderline deficiency is is best. Yeah, 100%. So yeah, supplements with some vitamin D, 2000 IU per day. It's actually really important though, if you are taking vitamin D supplementation to take it in the morning because vitamin D, it does interact with melatonin, which is our sleep hormone. So if you take it at night, some people do report that it does funky things to their sleep. So take it in the morning. It's also a fat soluble nutrient. So you want to be taking it with a meal with some dietary fat in it. For example, breakfast where you're hopefully having like a mixed meal. 
And then calcium and vitamin D, they actually assist with the absorption of one another in the small intestine. So if you're having calcium source at breakfast, like some cheese on an egg or some milk in your coffee, or heck, you might even be having some Greek yogurt on your oats, that's going to assist. Or if you're not, then just combining your vitamin D3 with a calcium supplement, which isn't uncommon either. They usually actually sell vitamin D3 combined with calcium when you're buying the supplement. But going back to your case, like you say, I don't see the sun very often. Well, you look outside and see the sun every single day, unless it's like a day where it's, I don't, it's my a little skin bit cloudy. Doesn't see the sun. Yeah, but no, we go for a walk every single afternoon with the dogs mm. for like half an hour. And sure, you're wearing a t-shirt, but... There's a lot of tree coverage as well. <laughs> yeah, but I'm in your defense, what I'm saying like, is your face, your arms, your legs are exposed to the sun. And we used to walk to the gym every single day when we trained at World's Gym Brisbane. But even then, that wasn't enough for you. Because you will hear people make the argument of like, oh, you know, I walk to the bus stop each day. Or, mm. you know, uh, during my 20-minute lunch break, I might go sit outside on the lawn in the sun. Sure, you might be getting some sun exposure, but it just still might not be enough. So I think bottom line is if you actually want to know whether or not you're nutrient deficient, the most objective, accurate way to tell is to actually get a blood test and to actually test for your vitamin D status, to actually test for your iron stores, see where you're at. Because heck, if you're actually tracking them, like my fitness pal, it attempts to tell you how much iron or calcium mm. you might be getting. Yeah, the accuracy of that, it's probably worse than like, you know, your Fitbit trackers trying to estimate how many calories you actually burn per day. I would even argue an app like Chronometer. Like Chronometer is notorious for telling you, okay, like, are you meeting your micronutrients for the day? But even then, man, like it's still just uh, based on averages from those foods. Like I might eat a carrot. I don't actually know how much beta carotene's in that carrot. So it's all based on averages. So you actually need to know, okay, w what's actually specific and unique to me? And the best way to do that is to just get a blood test. So if you have a history of deficiencies, you should probably be getting blood tests at least every four to six months. Or if you don't have any history of deficiencies and you don't have any signs that you're deficient, probably just get a blood test at least every 12 months just to make sure you're in the clear and you're really nice and healthy. For sure. Yeah. So vitamin D, calcium, you mentioned iron as well. That's a big one because mm. a lot of people, they just, they don't eat enough red meat. And even if you're eating other sources of iron, like your- Milo cereal is a good source of iron. <laughs> yeah, non-heme iron. But then you can- No, it's fortified with iron. It's fortified with iron, but we've had this discussion before. Like other nutrients will interfere with the absorption mm. of iron, so- I know, but it's, I'm just saying like my, people reference like non-heme sources of iron, like mm. spinach, but in reality, something like Milo cereal is better than spinach mm. for getting your iron. 100%. But like, yes, the downside is that if you have milk alongside your Milo cereal, which any sane person would, like you're then kind of, you're not stopping the absorption altogether, but considering like, I, I mean, I personally have like, 100 grams of cereal which is like like three and a half times mm. the recommended or the, the dosage amount on the packet so mm, yeah it, it would just interfere with the absorption so you might just be absorbing less mm. dietary iron but again for someone like you you don't have a history of iron deficiency and from all your recent blood tests your iron's always in a really good range because 
you eat kangaroo almost every single day, unless when it's not on sale and we have to resort to the chickens. <laughs> or you eat a lot of fortified products, right? But that, because your iron's always in range, you don't have to sweat those things. You don't have to be like, okay, sure, I'm going to be a sane person and combine milk on my iron fortified cereal. And sure, I might absorb a little bit less, but heck, I'm still gonna be totally fine anyway. Or mm. you melt some cheese onto your kangaroo. <laughs> no, I don't think, even you wouldn't melt cheese onto your Milo cereal. Uh, but you know, like for example, it's not uncommon to have a slice of cheese on a beef burger or on a kangaroo burger. At night in your stir fry, you melt cheese onto your kangaroo. And you could argue, heck, like, you know, there's, there's calcium and iron in the same meal. They're interfering with the absorption of one another. But it's like, uh, yeah, but I'm in range. That's verging on the orthorexic scale, in my opinion. Orthorexic, or I would argue that if someone does have a history of iron deficiency or they're currently anemic or iron deficient. Then they should be supplementing rather than focusing on food. I would say both. Like until they're back in a normal range, at least this is what I do in my dietary recalls. Like if someone is iron deficient, like yes, they probably need supplementation or they need to get an iron infusion if they're very, very low in iron. But then if it's an easy swap, you know, it's like, hey, you still need to eat cheese during the day, but why don't you have that at lunchtime with your chicken and potatoes and then at dinner time, when you're having your beef or your kangaroo, as a dietary fat source, that's where you can have your avocado. So like, you're not going to have as much interference there with your micronutrient absorption, at least until you can get back into a very normal range. That's just the way that I look at it. Mm. <laughs> just trying to get their iron boosted up as quick as possible. But those are those three omega-3s, right? Like we generally just recommend just supplementing with a high quality fish oil or a high quality algae oil uh, to cover your omega-3 bases. Because even if you're consuming oily fish, unless it's wild caught, if it's farmed, it's just questionable how much omega-3 is actually in it. So you and I both consume in the realm of two to three grams of omega-3 fish oil tablets per day to just cover our bases. But I think the last two to kind of just comment on would be vitamin B12 and iodine. But I'm personally under the impression that at least for those in the Western world, this probably isn't as much of a concern or they're not, they're two essential nutrients for sure, but it's far less likely that these are going to be deficient in the majority of the population. Even vitamin B12, like we know vitamin B12, you only get it from animal products. So there's obviously a huge scare that vegans are going to be deficient in vitamin B12. But one, even though it is a B vitamin and it's a water soluble nutrient, similar to something like vitamin C, vitamin C, because it's a water soluble nutrient, and just like all of our other B vitamins too, if you consume them in excess, you're likely to just pee them out. They're water soluble, you can't store them. Unlike fat soluble nutrients, vitamin A, D, E, and K. If you consume those in abundance, you can actually store them within your adipose tissue. But vitamin B12, it is so freaking important for our central nervous system, our cardiovascular system, ultimately our life, that vitamin B12, it actually can be stored in the liver for up to four years, which just goes to show how important it is. 
But vitamin B12, one, a lot of vegans and even vegetarians are well aware that, hey, if I'm restricting animal products, it's probably a good idea to be supplementing with vitamin B12. But at the same time, so many things are now fortified with vitamin B12. Even things that aren't advertised as being vegan or vegetarian. Like vitamin B12, man, it is in like almost every single energy drink. So in like high, high quantities. I've even had clients before who have had blood tests and it comes back with their vitamin B12 is like exorbitantly high because they regularly consume energy drinks. <laughs> so mm. vitamin B12, it's probably not one that people need to be super concerned about. But of course, if you get a blood test and it comes back that you are vitamin B12 deficient, get right on top of that. And the other one is iodine. So iodine, it's an essential nutrient that is responsible for our thyroid hormone health. And that's really its only role in the body. And thyroid hormone is obviously integral for our metabolism. But iodine, in the past, it was probably far more of a risk of deficiency, especially in developing countries. But here, like for example, a, a westernized country like Australia, iodine, it's actually mandatory that a lot of bread products and even cereal products are fortified with iodine. So if you ever buy a loaf of bread and you flip over the packet and read the ingredients in it, it's going to say that it's fortified with iodine. Plus iodized table salt, highly recommend that over the pink stuff. So those are another two that are really important, but it's probably pretty uncommon for people to be deficient in them. Yeah, I agree. I haven't really heard of many instances at all where someone's suffering from iodine deficiency in mm -hmm. particular. Yeah. And I just buy iodized table salts. I, I don't really, well, I do know why people buy other salt because mm -hmm. they're potentially misinformed or they just think it tastes better, but I'll always be using iodized salt. Mm -hmm. Me too. Me too. All right. Well, Jack, maybe we should end on a lighthearted question. And this one says, what's life like now that you're mortgaged up? Yeah, unfortunately, we didn't buy a house outright <laughs> in cash. No, we probably would have had to have kept saving for a number of more years. Mm. Well, honestly, it hasn't changed too much. For those that don't know, we, we purchased a house uh, in August. So it's been a few months now as homeowners, which has been great. And honestly, not too much has changed. Like we, Tierra and I are both people who are savers, not spenders. So... Uh, the money kind of just, I don't want to talk too much in depth about our finances, but yeah, essentially we, if we didn't, hadn't bought a house, our money would have just been saved regardless. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. I'm along the exact same lines in the sense that one now owning this home or <laughs> in the process of fully owning it ourselves, paying back this house, but being able to live here, I find it super motivating because now I know that the money that I'm earning it's being invested into something that I really want and that I really love and something that makes me really, really happy rather than just sitting in a bank account. So it's very motivating to know that your earnings are going towards something that you care about. And I guess like, you know, I, I see like each year there was kind of like a big financial spend. Like in 2020, I bought my Jimny outright. In 2021, we both paid off our hex debt. And then in 2022, 
we were able to put down the down deposit for a house. So, mm. and that's probably going to be just obviously where our cash flow is going <laughs> for the next number of years, apart from, you know, we, we have money that we want to use to travel and obviously compete and everything like that. But yeah, you and I, we just, we aren't big spenders. Dude, honestly, the dog food costs more than my weekly grocery <laughs> shopping bill. <laughs> and that's just because I, maybe dog food's just expensive. It's like $20 a bag. We got two. It's $32 a bag. Thir- you haven't been buying it on sale? <laughs> I will. Hopefully it's cheap when you buy it on sale. And when it's on sale, I'm like, Jack, buy like four of them. Uh, but yeah, legit, the dog food, like the dry kibble stuff and also like their meatballs and everything that they get to eat. Um, that's more expensive than my weekly grocery shopping bill. And that's not because I'm not eating any food, but... I, I don't know. I've just always just really been not so much of a cautious spender, but just a wise spender in terms of how I... Well, we our lives are fairly simple. Like mm. we don't need a fan, another fancy car. We don't need a boat. We don't need <laughs> lots of different clothes because we don't really go many places other mm. than the gym. I don't need 10 pairs of sneakers. No. I don't need... Yeah, 10 TVs either, so... Mm -hmm. No, definitely. (laughs) One TV is enough. Uh, But I I think for me, at least it just stems from, like, right after I finished high school, like, I wanted to be independent, and I moved out of home, and I started living in a share house and supporting myself. And if you don't have a huge amount of money, like, you have to be wise in how you choose to spend that. And luckily, I love fruits and vegetables, and I love cheap whole grains, like, oats and wholemeal flour so a lot of my grocery money it's kind of just spent on like discount fruit and cheap grains and you know kangaroo it's around 12 dollars a kilo but even that's gonna last me around like 10 to 12 days sort of thing and luckily we're very fortunate in the sense that protein we are supported by bpa australia and i out of like my four protein servings during the day I have like eggs in the morning and then I have a serving of whey. I have a serving of casein and then I have kangaroo or chicken at night. So protein is usually one of the most expensive macronutrients to buy from a grocery perspective. Mm. But also I've actually never purchased a takeaway coffee in my life. <laughs> and that's probably another, like it's just those little things that probably add up, right? Mm. Like rather than making your own little instant coffee at home and buying like the $7 jar that's probably gonna last you like 30 to 40 days, actually purchasing like a coffee out for four or $5 every single day, those little things add up. Yeah, I would say that groceries is probably, or food in general, whether it's food purchased as a takeaway or eating out or groceries, like, if people want to save some money, then I think that's usually where they should start. Mm, yeah, 100%. Just cook for yourself. But that's not to say you and I are stingy. We do have two gym memberships. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. But no, I, I'm I'm happy in the position that we're in right now. It's good. Mm. All right. Well, finishing on one final thing for today, Jack, is something that you learned this week. I'll have to let you go again. Oh, boy. This is just becoming a common theme, man. Throwing it right back at me. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I'm not as prepared as you, I guess, mm-hmm. for what I learned. Okay. Well, something that I learned this week is actually from a Netflix series that we're watching. Season two of Down to Earth, Down Under with Zac Efron. Not to be confused with bodybuilding, 
down under that's a whole different thing and arguably even better but i actually really like this series because one i feel like zach and i we share a similar personality like those really goofy things like the voiceovers that he'll do and things like that i'm like oh my god that is like as cheesy as what i would do <laughs> and so many people would be like you can't say that do not keep that in and i'm just like i don't care i'm gonna say it i like it i think it's funny <laughs> but anyway this series down to earth down under with zach efron it's kind of like a what would you call it? like it's it's talking about like it's a docu-series or yeah something. it's a docu-series it's talking about like you know climate change and the geography of australia and the history and just how to really take control and just be more conscious of our environment and climate change etc and i learned something about mangroves in the sense that mangroves can actually uptake 20 percent more co2 compared to most other plants which i think is really interesting because we live near the shoreline and there's a lot of mangroves around. And one of the people in the docu-series was talking about how it is just a coincidence how a lot of airports, at least here in Australia, are right on the shoreline and they're generally surrounded by estuaries and mangroves. And that probably helps to actually take up a bit of their air pollution and the CO2 that they're producing from all of the planes, which I think is pretty interesting. So mangroves, you know, if you're walking out, like try not to step on them, <laughs> let them grow tall. And so they can, can soak up that CO2 and just really help the environment. Mm, for sure. Well, Jack, did you think of something that you learned? Yeah, more of an observation, I guess. But in the beach in front of our house, like it has, we, I mean, for months I kept seeing these crab holes, but no crabs. And then, I mean, sometimes it's only happened two or three times but there will be literally like thousands of crabs on the beach. And I'm not sure, like I'm sure some sort of environmentalist or ecologist would know, but you've seen them as well. Like it'll literally be only at certain times of the day when it's low tide, like they'll kind of all just do their crab walks along the beach. <laughs> What's amazing is that they're literally just like in these armies. There mm. literally are thousands of them in these huge swarms. They're, they're so small. Uh, that you know, you're not really scared of them pinching you. You even picked one up the other day and it was kind of crawling on your ha hand, but it didn't mm. pinch you at all. But no. what's nuts is that they're so congregated and there's so many of them. If we're walking down the beach and it's not super windy, you can hear them. You mm. can hear them scurrying. Like, and you look behind you, you're like, oh my gosh, it's, um, it's amazing. But the dogs aren't scared of them either. No. <laughs> Yeah, it's just amazing how like when you come up to them, like they'll they'll literally just in a few seconds they'll be underground. Mm. Like they'll camouflage very quickly. Mm. And for anyone who doesn't know, that's actually the reason why if you go walking out on a beach kind of at low tide and you see all of those little balls all over the beach, those are from the crabs. The crabs like trying to make those little balls of sand and they're spitting them out. Pretty sure they do that when they're scurrying down and they're, they're digging their holes down. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I don't think they do it for fun. Yeah. Did you know something that I actually learned is that sand is actually parrotfish poo. Really? Yeah, legit. Like parrotfish, they'll like just, they'll, they'll munch up coral and then they'll poo it out and that's what sand is. Like sand really is just... I think like, that's maybe part of sand, but I wouldn't say that's purely sand. <laughs> probably, okay, probably not every single grain of sand, particularly like out in the freaking Egyptian desert, probably wasn't from a parrotfish poo, but 
the large majority of poo, at least here on like the Australian shores, a lot of it is from parrotfish munching on coral, pooing it out. And then you have these little grains of sand. So I can cite you on that. Nelson yeah. et al. Well, maybe cite, uh, cite the marine biologist that was interviewed on the Dr. Carl podcast. Okay. That seems more reliable. <laughs> Go to him, not to me. <laughs> anyway, guys, want to wrap it up here? Yep. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for tuning in. If you guys did enjoy this podcast, please remember to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag TVD, and we will catch you next week.